Thank you, Brother Allen. Tonight our topic is on the servitude of Christ. <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but as we've been going through this series, studying about God, the Godhood, and uh, of course about Christ as well, you'd think after all these years we've learned everything we can know, but there's always more to learn about who Christ is, what He did, and who He represents. And I'm just amazed of um, how shallow my knowledge of Him really is as we study more and more about Him. And we're talking about the servitude of Christ tonight, and, and no doubt uh, God has many servants. Uh, he has them here on earth, but He also has them in heaven. Uh, I'll give it a couple of examples. Anybody got Psalm 103, uh, verse 20? Want to read that? Psalm 103, verse 20. Okay, again, uh, the angels there, they excel in strength, and they hearken to the voice of the Word of God, and they do His commandments. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews 1, verse 13 and 14. Uh, thank you, Phyllis. Now, we're looking at, focus on verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Uh, but I felt it important to read verse 13 to know that verse 14 is referring to angels. And the angels are servants of God. So God has service not only on earth, but also in heaven. They're there to do the bidding of God. But tonight, our focus is not going to be on any servant of God. Uh, or even from God. But something I think infinitely more blessed and amazing, our focus is going to be on the, the divine servant himself. The divine servant himself, and of course, that is Jesus Christ. Now, again, and I don't want to mean to run this in the ground, but when we speak of the Godhead, who makes up the Godhead? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, uh, and yet there is a, uh, I don't want to say a pecking order, but we have God the Father is one, God the Son number two, God the Holy Spirit number three. does not mean they're less or more than, not at all. It's simply how the Word of God and theologians refer to that. And so it's a remarkable phenomenon to think about, if you think about it. Uh, and certainly it would be very unusual in any other uh, connection, if you will, but what we're seeing here almost amounts to a, a contradiction in terms because we have supremacy. And my question would be, how supreme is Christ? All supreme, yes. So on one hand, we got the supremacy of Christ. But on the other hand, we got the subordination of Christ. The Godhead, Christ is part of that, but also servanthood. From a human perspective, those are... Two opposites. Supremacy, servanthood, Godhead, servanthood, supremacy, subordination. And yet they are joined uh, together. 
And what a remarkable and even surprising combination we find in the in the Bible uh, that the, that the Most High would abase Himself, the Lord of Glory would assume the form of the menial, the King of Kings. Now hold on, became a subject. Now, from a human perspective, does that make sense? No. But is that not what he did? Sure he did. He became a subject. He became a servant. Now, most of you have been saved long enough. And if you, and I don't know if, uh, where you first learned it, how we became familiar with it, but most of you uh, are familiar with the fact uh, that uh, the Son of God took unto himself our nature, and he was born as a baby in a manger. And we know that. We've been taught that. We've read it in the Scriptures. But the thing we have to be careful of, uh, sometimes we become so familiar uh, with things like that. We've learned it all of our Christian life. We know that God became man. We know he was born a baby uh, there in Bethlehem. And we the danger of becoming so familiar with that that we lose a sense of wonderment. Now remember, who was that that was born a baby? Yeah, God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings. And so it's interesting, our focus tonight is not so much the miracle or the mystery of the divine incarnation, but our focus tonight is the fact of the incarnation. Incarnation. God became flesh. <laughs> My friend, that blows me away. God would become flesh. And why did he do that? Say it again. To save us. Not to save himself, but to save us. Our focus tonight is going to be Isaiah 52, verse 13, and then we're going to kind of take it apart uh, phrase by phrase in a, little, in a moment here. But let's go ahead and read Isaiah 52, look at verse 13. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, by the way, uh, Isaiah 52 and, and other places when uh, the Old Testament speaks about uh, God's servant, Sometimes God is speaking about the nation of Israel. They were intended to be God's servant. But the problem is they failed. They didn't fulfill what God had desired for them to do. They were to carry the message of a Messiah to the rest of the world. And the problem was they couldn't follow himself and do it themselves. And so most of the time when God is speaking about his servant there, he's talking about his son. Because how many know... Christ did what the Jews could not do and did not do. He is the servant Isaiah is speaking about here. Now, there are four things there in verse uh, Isaiah 52 when it talks about this servant. First of all, the exclamation. He says, behold. Behold. Second of all is the subject, and that's the divine servant. Behold my servant. The third thing is the perfection of his work, he shall deal prudently. And the fourth thing is the reward God gives him. He will be exalted 
and extolled. Exalted and extolled. Now, let's go back to the exclamation of the word behold. What does that mean? Say it again. Okay, listen up. Huh? Yeah, to look, to listen. But here what's interesting, it's not just a call for us to focus our gaze on something. But also, it is a call to adoringly consider the one before us. And also, it's an exclamation or a note of wonderment. Behold, look at it, but also understand the wonder of this. My servant. Yes, understand. And when you do, you'll know the wonder of it. It'll be more than just focusing your attention on that. That's part of it. But the whole idea is saying, you know what? What a wonder this is. Now think about it again. This is no doubt an amazing sight. Something to behold, to see the maker of heaven and earth. The God of the universe. In the form of a servant. And here's what blows my mind as well. The giver of the law became subject to it. Don't miss the wonder of it. Behold. Wonder at it. Be filled with a holy awe. And then consider how we should respond. Behold. I think about that. And I'm convinced the only proper response is worship. Worship. Now, by the way, God says, Behold my servant. And so God, the only one, if you will, himself owns Christ in this office. Now, let me ask you a question. And you've studied long enough to know by now a little bit about Christ being a servant. Was he embarrassed? No. In fact, for him, it was very blessed. And God was not disappointed because it was the will of God that his son Christ be a servant. And so God is not ashamed to claim him as his servant. And he feels blessed by that. But my, what a contrast from the treatment he received from those he came to save. The Exactly right, yes. And the same is true with God. The same is true with God. And I think it's important to realize 
Well, for, let me ask a question, okay? Were the Jews expecting the Messiah to be a servant? No. Yeah. What were they expecting? The king, yeah, right, right, Lamentic. Yeah, a conquering king, too, yeah. That's what they were expecting. And it's because the Messiah appeared in a servant form. That's the reason the Jews despised and rejected him. He simply wasn't what they expected. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They were what? Yeah, why? Because he was a servant. I mean, come on, he's just a, a carpenter's son. The carpenter, he, you know, his daddy was a carpenter. We know his mother Mary. We know his brothers and sisters. And they were offended at that. They didn't like that. And again, that's not what they expected the Messiah, to be a servant. And so they rejected him and they despised him. Now, it's interesting. Christ becoming a servant. It didn't surprise them to the angels. To them, that incredible sight was not a surprise. Because they received it. And they understood the divine order. Hebrews 1, look at verse 6. Amen. Okay, let's stop here for a minute, okay? Thank you, Phyllis, for reading that. It says, when he, brings, when he brought his first begotten of the world, when did that happen? I'm sorry? Okay, yes, in Bethlehem. When Christ was born in Bethlehem. So, that day, almost a little over 2,000 years ago, Christ became God. What do you mean, no, Lavenda? Amen. He was always God. So what changed that day? He became man. He took on flesh. So here, notice this. Do you think the angels knew he's always been God? Sure. Now, we know this was God's plan from the foundation of the world to send a Savior to become flesh. We know that. I'm not sure the angels knew that. So I look at Hebrews there, chapter 1, verse 6, and we see the word let. Okay, he's been God all this time. He's still God, but he became what? Flesh. Took on the form of a servant, according to Paul's writing. So the command is let, as though they might be uncertain. What do we do now? All these ages we have worshipped him as God. And now all of a sudden he's the God-man. What do we do now? Huh? Still worship. It simply does not change. Amen. And it's interesting. Let them worship. Worship him even though he is now 
assumed creature form. And Phyllis, you're right. Nothing has changed. Continue to worship Him. But notice again there in Hebrews 1, 6, it says, Let all the angels of God worship Him. What does that mean? Which ones? Wait, what about Michael? He's an archangel. <laughs> Doesn't matter. From the highest, I don't know, the cherub, whatever. Now, I guess there's a, if there's an archangel, there's lower angels, whatever reason. So, which ones are excused from worshiping? None. Let all, let all the angels worship him. The lowest, archangel, cherubim, seraphim, principalities, powers, they're all to worship him. So they worship him in the eternity past as God. And now as a God-man, they're to continue to worship the same way they always have. And, of course, when the Bible says, worship him, the idea is to give him homage. Give praise unto him. Because here's the thing. And I think, at least it was for me, difficult to wrap my mind around this. Because when Christ became flesh, and hear me well, it did not tarnish his personal glory. So again, let me help, help me to hope I can illustrate this. When, when God became flesh, did he become less God? No. It did not tarnish his glory in the least bit. In fact, if it did anything, it enhanced his glory. God became flesh. And so again, Hebrews 1, verse 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten of the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. It says, he said, means God said. God gave the command. And what a blessing it is to hear the Heavenly Father testify how much he esteemed the one who was born in Bethlehem. So now that God has become flesh, the Word from John 1 became flesh, did God think less of Jesus? No. It simply enhanced his glory. And so God says to the angels, don't let this stagger you. You know, God realized you've never seen this sight, a sight like this before, but continue to worship the second person in the Holy Trinity, even though now he's become a servant. He's wearing menial grog. Menilgar. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 13 and 14. All right, now hold on. Now, by the way, I know we're kind of in the middle of Luke chapter 2 there, but it's when the angel, uh, when the birth of Christ takes place, and uh, the shepherds hear the good news and blah, blah, blah. 
And the angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good word toward men. So God told them, the angels, I want you to worship him. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, what are the angels doing? They're worshiping him. Isn't it interesting? The Bible, the Spirit of God, records to their obedience because the Bible tells us, inspired by the Spirit of God, that while the shepherds were keeping watch over the flock by night, an angelic messenger came and they announced the Savior's birth. And what did the angels do? They broke out in praise and worship. Folks, that's the only proper response. Praise and worship. How many know that we serve a jealous God? Did you know that? Do you think that God is jealous of the honor of his son? Absolutely. God is extremely jealous of the honor of his son. We see that again when Christ is baptized. Go to Matthew 3, verse 16 and 17. Seventeen, two, please. Okay, Christ is baptized, and all of a sudden there's a voice from heaven. Wh- whose voice is it? It's God. What do you say? This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am so disappointed in. No, in whom I am well pleased. So please understand, when Christ became flesh, it didn't diminish his glory, it enhanced it. God says he was well pleased with his son. So Isaiah tells us, behold, my servant, look in awe and wonder. And then he says to us, he shall deal prudently. That's the word the King James uses. Now, I looked it up in one of the dictionaries. I'm not sure if it was Merriam-Webster or not, but one of the dictionaries. And prudent means, has a different variety of meaning, but it means to be marked by wisdom or judiciousness. can mean prudent advice. Prudent also means shrewd in the management of practical affairs. It can be marked by circumspection, discreet, approval. That's the English dictionary meaning. I also did a word search in the Hebrew word of my Hebrew dictionary, Strong's Concordance. And that word prudence in the, the original uh, Hebrew word means to be circumspect, to be intelligent, to consider, to be an expert, to instruct, to prosper, to deal prudent, to give skill, have good success, teach, make to understand wisdom, Behave, consider, make, wise, and to guide wittingly. That's interesting. Go ahead, Phyllis. Um, 
Yes. Would Christ do that? When? All the time. Amen. Now, hold on. Sometimes that same Hebrew word is translated understand. Uh, Sometimes it's translated wise. Sometimes to prosper. Sometimes wisely. Sometimes that same word for prudent in the Hebrew is uh, translated understanding, to consider, uh, to instruct. And again, sometimes prudent, a skill, and a teach. So it's translated different ways, even in the King James Bible. But here's what we have to be careful of. We have to be careful not to interpret that word prudent the way the world usually does. Okay? Because in the eyes of the world, most people, if not all, I wouldn't say all, I'd say a majority or many of the people, uh, would use the dictionary that says prudent means to act shrewdly. That's what usually the world looks that way at it. And probably most of the time, when the world speaks of acting prudently, it's nothing more than a compromise of principle. So my question is, would Jesus ever compromise principle? No. So we know that would never fit him. So that being said, for most of the world, from their perspective, Christ acted very imprudently. Now think about this, and if you think the way lost people think, they would say to us, or to him, you should have acted more shrewdly. Because you could have spared yourself a lot of suffering if you'd just been a little bit less extreme. Can you hear that in our society today? Uh, If you'd have been a little more careful... A little less extreme and simply go with the religious flow of the day. You didn't act that way. You didn't act shrewdly. Uh, if, if you'd have done that, you could have avoided a lot of opposition. If you'd just been a little bit milder with them Pharisees. If you'd have just took Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people, you'd have got by a whole lot better. Or, or maybe if you just, if you just, well, don't talk about those things that leave a bad taste in people's mouths. Avoid those subjects. Maybe, uh, wow, if you'd just been a little more tactful, Jesus, uh, especially as the world sees these things, if you, if you just, Lord, if you just hadn't gone into the temple and turned those tables over, I mean, what was the point of that? You know, that, all that did was make him mad. And, and Lord, if, if you just hadn't charged them, of, 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 accused them of making your house, a den of thieves. No wonder you experience so much trouble if it had just backed off a little bit. 
What's wrong with that? That's amen. He doesn't compromise. Now hold on. <laughs> I would agree that would have been the perspective of the religious people back in Jesus' day. But how many know that's the perspective of our world today? It's, I think it's worse. And you know what the problem with a lot of churches in America today? They've compromised. <laughs> I don't remember. I think it was Bodie Bachman. I was listening to Curious Week. And uh, I, usually, I usually didn't listen to clips of his preaching. Great preacher. And he made a statement. He said, we're living in a time where churches say we need to be seeker-friendly for those who are seeking after God. He said, the problem is, my Bible says there is none that seeks after God. No, not one. It's not happening. And yet, they're compromising. But that's been the story through the ages. Jesus, you, you'd have got a lot better off if you hadn't been so, so uh, dogmatic on Scripture if you wouldn't have just been a little softer. But we have to understand something, folks. Did Jesus come to earth to please man? No. Who did he come to please? God, the Father. And so from a spiritual viewpoint... That viewpoint has always been the Father's glory. And it's, of course, God is always seeking the eternal good of His own. Christ always dealt prudently. And by the way, God said so that He did. And God testifies to that fact. What good does it do to tell people what they want to hear? We mean nothing really. Yeah. And God didn't come to do that. Yeah. And I'm going to spend some time tonight to kind of get rid of that general misconception of what the word prudent means. Because whatever we do, I don't want to interpret it the way the world does. Now, certainly, it's true, even as Christians, sometimes we act in rashness. Or, as the Bible says, we act with a zeal that's not according to knowledge. And whenever we do that, act in in a rash way, or in zeal not according to knowledge, it will bring unnecessary trouble. And we're not to do that. But, if the opposition we face is because we are faithful to God, Because we will not compromise His Word. Because we will not compromise our separation from the world. That's okay. 
In fact, the Bible says everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will be opposed. How many know we have people who profess to be religious, are saved, and they're not? And you can mark it down. We have got to expect those who are only professors of religion, not possessors of it, to tell us we have only to blame ourselves because our lack of worldly tact, of worldly prudence, has made things difficult for us. That's what the world says. James chapter 3, look at verse 17. All right, thank you, Phyllis. Now, my question would be this. We know what the world would say. Even those who profess to be religious are Christians. They don't possess it. They would say to us, back off a little bit. Be more toler- tolerate their view. Accept the world's viewpoint. That's wisdom from the world. Should that be where we get our wisdom from? No. James tells us where wisdom comes from, good wisdom. It comes from God. That wisdom is pure, it is peaceable, it is gentle, it is full of mercy, there's good fruits, there's no partiality, and there is no hypocrisy. So when we think of of what the Bible says about Christ dealing prudently, it means he acted wisely, and he acted carefully. So my question would be, when did Christ ever make a mistake? What? Never. What about the day he drove those money changers out? (laughs) Never. When did he ever act foolishly? Never. He acted prudently. When did he ever do anything he had to go back and correct? Never. Never. Because the wisdom he acted from was not wisdom from this world. The wisdom he acted from was wisdom from above. The same wisdom that James wrote about. Pure, peaceable, and gentle. I don't know about you, but I'm asking the Lord, give me that kind of prudence. Give me more of it. And the only way that I can have that is by communing with Christ, drinking in of His Spirit. So God says, Behold, my servants, look in wonder. 
He shall be, he shall deal prudently. Then he goes on to say, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. In a nutshell, that's the reward God gives Christ because Christ was willing to become a servant. And for the faithless Christ displayed in discharging that office, he was a faithful servant. It tells us, first of all, how much the father valued the condensation of his son. But he also shows us here the reward he made, God made to the one who became obedient. Obedient even to death. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. We looked at that in detail some weeks ago. Anybody got that? Thank you, Phyllis. Because Jesus Christ, in his servitude, willingly set aside his glory to totally, completely obey the Father and to do the Father's will, the Bible says that God highly exalted him. By the way, was that not the promise God made way back in Isaiah? Yes, it was. It's interesting. God did not leave Christ in the grave. We celebrated that this past week, this past Sunday. But he raised him from the dead, brought him back up to heaven, and restored his former glory. And by the word of Jesus now, he's in heaven. We know the Bible teaches us that God gave to Christ all authority in heaven. All authority on earth. He gave Christ the authority to judge. He made him Lord both of the dead and the living. And he has seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And that's where he sits today. Christ sits above, far above all power, all rule and authority, all dominion. And any title that can be given him. But not only now in this present age, but also in the one to come. He has highly exalted him. And not only that, he has, God has placed everything under the feet of Christ. And appointed him to be ahead over everything for the church. Hebrews 1, look at verse 3. Peter says, I mean, he says on the right hand of the majesty of high. First Peter 3, look at verse 22. 
First Peter 3, verse 22, is that where you're at? So where's he at? On the right hand of God. Revelation 5, verse 12. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Okay. The servitude of Christ. Would you agree he was a perfect servant? Without a doubt. And this perfect servant has been exalted to the throne. Seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. And angels and all authorities are made subject unto him. It's also interesting... In Revelation 5, his people, everyone, the angels, the heaven, everyone, are exalting him. And I want to tell you, we talk about a lot of things we'll do when we get to heaven, but you know what we're doing most of all? Exalting Christ. Giving him glory. A couple of principles here tonight. Number one, in Christ, service and freedom were perfectly joined together. He gave the service of being. He gave the service of work. He gave the service of suffering. And the service of worship to the very highest point of which that service is able to reach. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. Now, I know that David wrote this psalm, but the book of Hebrews applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Christ came, Knowing as he did, everything was coming. He came with these words upon his lips. I delight to do your will. He knew it was going to happen. But he declared, I have come to do your will. So we have service and freedom joined together. By the way, why did Christ become a servant? Save us more sin. But why did he make that choice? He loved us and he wanted to. He freely made that choice. Second of all, Christ had many masters. And he served them with perfect service. Three or four. Number one, he had his own high purpose. He came to die for us. And he was armed with that mission. And he never swerved from the path. 
Second of all, he served the law. Now, the law actually had no right over Christ, and yet he served the law. In fact, he said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but do what? To fulfill it. So he served the law in every requirement, moral, political, ceremonial, even to the smallest jot or tittle. (laughs) And then he served death. That fearful master. But guess who won? Christ did. Step by step, inch by inch, very slowly, very measuredly, he put himself under that spell. He obeyed its mandates. And Christ claimed power over it. On that third day, he got out of that grave. He also served his heavenly Father. And so when we talk about the servitude of Christ, he was a true servant in every aspect of that name. Not only fulfilled the Father's will, but as he did it, he always traced it back to the power of the Father and gave the glory back to God. He didn't seek his own will. Christ came to seek the will of the Father. Messiah, Emmanuel, Son of Man. The list of names goes on and on and on. Yet sometimes we forget one of the most important titles for Christ was my servant. My servant. But also understand For me, there's another title that's very dear to me, and that is the Master. And the only way, the only way to understand the Master, we have to know the servant. We have to know the servant. And I say tonight, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's our testimony tonight. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's stop there for tonight.